Peter 1. We've discussed this a number of times over recent years just by way of illustration or application for different messages, different texts that we have considered, but uh, we live in a world, we live in a time in our world that is constantly vying for your attention, for my attention. Uh, In fact, sometimes, truth be told, we're vying for others' attention as well. And there's all kinds of resources to do that. There's all kinds of ways in which that is done today. Uh, Certainly, technology has enabled that in so many ways, uh, where even today, you will connect with people and kind of... uh, if you will, just reach out to them in the afternoon, maybe interrupt their afternoon and say, hey, happy Easter. And that's a wonderful thing. That's, that's a good thing to be able to communicate to others through technology. Uh, but at the same time, uh, those phones that we carry or those devices that we have, beep, buzz, uh, do everything they can to say, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. And uh, even with the advent of technology, you know, we have um, ubiquitous cameras anymore that are something you would have never seen, never known about. Someone's grabbed their phone and gone, hey, look at this, you need to see this. And uh, whether it's social media or the mainstream media on the news, uh, your attention is called to events that have taken place. And once more, there's some blessing to that at times. And then at other times, you're like, I can't believe this has become newsworthy. Uh, All you have to do is scroll through social media and begin to realize that. Like, hey, you need to see this. Here's what your former next-door neighbor who now lives across the country in a totally different state wants you to know that they ate for dinner. And uh, you're given this information that's going to call you to attention. Look at this. Like this. Pay attention to this. And uh, we're all guilty of that. It is human nature for us to call attention to different things. I mean, certainly even in the business world today, economically, attention's being directed. There there are newsworthy articles this last week of, hey, we're not going to do this because they did this, and so you need to see this, and, you know, virtue signaling takes place in all sorts of ways because we live in a world, both personally and universally, with all kinds of tools that is vying for attention. What's interesting with that is a corresponding reality is the documented decline in attention span. I was reviewing the statistics even this last week where in terms of one decade, sociologists were able to document and say attention span declined 33% a third. So now what holds our attention has just gone that much faster, which may be the reason why some of us even at times struggle to pay attention during the message part of the service right? It's like, oh, I need something else. And this popped into my mind and my phone just buzzed in my pocket. Can I get away with looking at it? And all of a sudden, our, you know, things are vying for our attention. They're calling out to us, trying to distract us along the way. So we have all these things vying for our attention, yet our ability to hold attention has decreased at the same time, probably understandably. And yet corresponding with all of that, we've seen this rise in all kinds of strong emotions, whether it's outreach and ang- outrage and anger or depression or anxiety or fear because all this information is coming our way and we're absorbing it. What do I think about that? And I don't know how to process this. And there's just more and more and more coming at us that we just struggle to process it. I said to you recently, I think it rung true with some of you, that God did not wire us for omniscience. God did not create us to be able to know all there is about everything that is going on currently and be able to handle it and process it all. 
And so it's very important that we step back at times and say, what am I going to give my attention to? You know, you can sit with people that you love deeply and your phone buzzes and all of a sudden now you're distracted, taking attention from people that you love because you got an email from work. Which of those should get your attention, right? As we come to 1 Peter 1 today, I want us to see what the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, calls these people's attention to. And I want us to be reminded that what Peter tells them, give attention to this, bless this, is what you and I ought to give attention to, particularly today, as we remember the fact that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins and yours, but not just to stay dead, but to rise again, giving hope. You see, what's fascinating is I think about those uh, observations from our modern world and compare them to the text in front of us. What Peter calls attention to here does not bring outrage. It does not bring depression or anxiety. In fact, it brings hope. Because he's going to say there directly in the text that we read earlier, we're going to bless God. We need to give attention to God. We need to focus on what God has done for us because... He's brought you again. He's given you life again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have something that is worth giving our attention to, and it's worth calling others to give their attention to because of new life in Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead. So we come to the text this morning in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. We want to begin by this statement or with this recognition. The resurrection deserves a response of praise. In light of the illustration I used a moment ago, we could say it this way. The resurrection demands our attention. But we can also say the resurrection deserves a response of praise. Look with me at that first phrase in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As, as Peter makes the statement of blessing, he's calling our attention to God the Father and what he's done through the one who is Master or Lord. He's Savior Jesus Christ because he was the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And he says, look at him, exalt him. And this morning, I would certainly be remiss if I did not call all of us to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've sung along those lines. We've said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise Jehovah for what he has done for us. He's worthy of our praise. And yet, as we think about this statement, I want to remind you, if or perhaps inform you, if you're not familiar, of the context of these words. We make the statement, the resurrection deserves a response of praise, but consider first the context of these words. For the people that Peter is writing to here, life has changed suddenly and significantly. It's changed dramatically for them. You catch that in the very first verse of the book, the very first verse of the letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers 
scattered through Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And we're like, okay, it's just a bunch of places. They're places in what was Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey today. And he's, Peter says, I'm writing to those people who are strangers, or we might say they're foreigners. Today, we might almost look at them as refugees. They've been displaced from what is familiar, what's comfortable, what's home. As the letter unfolds, we begin to realize that the reason they are displaced is because they are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. People look at them because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution occurs, and so they spread out. And Peter now writes to people. It's no longer uh, able to be identified because they live in the same city. For us, we're able to gather this morning as a church in Westchester, Pennsylvania, look at one another and say, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is my church family. But imagine living in that day where persecution has been so severe, life has been so radically changed that they're now dotted through all these towns through Asia Minor, through modern-day Turkey. Peter's writing to those people, and he's saying, listen, God is worthy of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he's done for us through his Son. We could say it this way as we talk about the context of these words. There is both uncertainty and difficulty. For these people, there is both uncertainty and difficulty. That stood out to me this week as I was preparing for our time together this morning because for many, the last year has been marked by uncertainty and difficulty. Now, I would be quick to point out, it is not anywhere as severe as what the people here are facing. You are not living in a different country away from your homeland, scattered apart from your church family. But there have been points in the last 12 months where we weren't together We were scattered in random places through Westchester, Downingtown, Coatesville, New Jersey, on and on it goes, Exton, Malvern, keep going, right? Scattered in your home saying, you know what, this is different. Is everything okay? Is it not okay? And, you know, beyond the medical side of things or the potential health things, there were work implications, perhaps financial implications, and then you go into an election season, you think, oh, no, not again, Right? There's just uncertainty. There's difficulty. And perhaps even in just shifts that you see culturally, you felt hostility as a Christian. And you go, this is just weird. This is strange. This is different. This is uncertain. I don't know that I like this. While again, our circumstances are nowhere as severe as the people Peter's writing to. Can I remind you the truth that he gives applies to us just as well? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done for us in his son, his death and resurrection, he deserves a response of praise. Not just on Easter Sunday, right? Not just today to go, but really every day, every moment through life, To say, God, you are worthy of my life. I think of where we're going to get to. Usually on Sundays, if you're not with us, we've been in the book of Colossians. Uh, You get later on into Colossians from where we are, chapter 3, verse 1. He's like, look, if you've been risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, not on things here on the earth. Like, life is not about here. 
you know, for the people in Peter's day, they got it. It's like life isn't about home. We're not home anymore. We're strangers. We're living in a foreign land. But God deserves our praise. For you and I, while at home, no matter what goes on, life is about bringing praise to God because He is Creator, but also because of what He's done for us through Jesus Christ as Savior. How can He say these things? How can Peter make this statement? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having looked at the context of these words, let's look at the cause of these words. In verse 2, he highlights the work that God has done through himself as God the Father, through the Spirit as well, but also through Jesus Christ the Son. He's pointing out that these people have believed on Jesus Christ. Their, these, their hope in what has taken place. He is their future. And in the midst of that, Peter wants them to understand, look, God chose you as a recipient of his mercy. You're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, God's marked you out as his own. He's consecrated you as his own. That's the idea of sanctified you through the work of the Spirit. Because when we believe and Christ saves us, the Spirit then indwells us. God says, you're mine. You're designated to me through the work of the Spirit. And sprinkling of the blood of obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's Christ's work applied to you to rescue you. You can praise him because of what he's done for you, because of the salvation that he's given you. He's marked you out as his. You might not feel at home where you are. You might feel like, man, the world's really changed. But you can praise him because you're his. He comes back to this theme, by the way, right before telling them how to interact with government. He comes back to this theme in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, he says, God's chosen you as his own. He's appointed you as a holy nation, a peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He says, look, God has shown you mercy that you did not deserve. He's chosen you to be his own so that you'd praise him. Because his work deserves a response of praise. That is why he will go on to tell them, look, go ahead and live as strangers and foreigners. Now, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, those who are foreigners just passing through, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Don't live for here and now, live for him. The resurrection deserves a response of praise. But secondly, as we keep working our way through verse 3 into verses 4 and 5, we want to see that the resurrection also provides a reason to hope. The resurrection provides a reason to hope. This ought to drive our praise. We've already touched on the fact God's worthy. He saved us through Christ, verse 2. He's chosen us as his own. But then as he continues on, he just adds to more reasons why we should praise him, why we should bless him. So we want to look at this idea that the resurrection provides a reason to hope. First, we see the reason to hope is motivated by unearned abundant mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which 
according to his abundant mercy. Before he's going to get to the central truth of the resurrection, before he's going to get to the hope that that brings, he highlights that it's God's work is motivated by an unearned, abundant mercy. I say unearned because, again, sometimes in life we have these transactional relationships, maybe good, maybe not good, probably often unhealthy, where someone says, hey, look, if you do this, I'll do this. God did not come to sinful mankind. God did not come to us in our selfishness and rebellion against him and go, hey, you know what? If you go to church, I might cut you a break. If you do good and love your neighbors, I might cut you a break. God did not establish that kind of transactional basis for our relationship to him. God said, here's my mercy. Again, what is mercy? Mercy is a disposition by which you do not give someone that which they justly deserve as a punishment. God can look at mankind and his sin. Again, Scripture clearly teaches all have sinned. All have disobeyed God. All have come short of the glory of God. We don't live for him. We live for ourselves. Because of that, a holy God, a God who lives in justice, should look at us and say, you deserve judgment. You deserve condemnation. You don't obey me. You don't live for me. You live for you. So you deserve judgment. And again, the Bible describes that as death and eternity in a place called hell. But again, the point here is that for believers, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, for salvation, he says God has shown you abundant mercy. Unearned, abundant mercy. Pardon from that which you justly deserve. That is the nature of our God. We do have a God who does delight in mercy. Think with me to the familiar words of Psalm 103. Again, there's more in the psalm that I can go through this morning, but I just want to give you a little snippet. Maybe you can look at the rest and see it built out on either end of this quote. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, Again, I think it's important that our mindset get corrected by the Word of God because sometimes we live in a world that wants to paint God as though He's some angry figure just waiting to bash you over the head. Here's the way the Bible describes God or God describes Himself through the Bible. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. That's a great definition for mercy. He has not dealt with you after your sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, unless we miss this, because I'm afraid sometimes like in our self-interested kind of sense. We're like, oh, that's great. God's been merciful. Can I just remind you that God did not say, well, I'm just going to be merciful and I'm going to overlook your sin and pretend like it never happened and just leave it back there. Yeah, you did wrong, but let's just pretend it never happened because sometimes people do act that way. Right? I mean, again, we think about it this way. If a crime is committed against us, a severe crime is committed against us, 
We don't want to simply go to the courthouse and say, you know what, no problem, just overlook it. No big deal, the, the theft that occurred or the murder that occurred, just overlook it. We want justice. Our heart cries out for justice. And what we're reminded of as we celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the demands of justice were paid. The reason God can show us abundant mercy is not because he overlooked our sin, but because he paid for our sin. He sent his own son who lived perfectly. Later on in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he'll describe it this way. Christ also has suffered, once suffered for sins. The just, Christ, the just one for the unjust, all of us. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit or raised in the spirit. The reason God can show us abundant mercy is because Jesus has paid for your sins and mine. That's a wonderful truth. And the biblical reality is that it's not something we earn. It's something we simply receive by believing on Christ. And again, I would ask you whether you're in church every week, whether it's the first time you've been in church a long time, or maybe the first time you've ever been in church. Has there ever been a time where you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior for your sin? Not saying, God, I'm trying to please you. God, I'm trying to make things right with you. But to say, God, I know that I can't, but I know that I've sinned against you. I'm believing that Jesus died for my sins. That Jesus rose again. God, I'm I'm just asking you to save me. If you haven't, I would encourage you to talk to God today to tell him you are a sinner and to believe on Jesus Christ alone to be Savior. The wonderful thing about mercy is that it is not earned. If you were with us in our study in Titus, we looked at Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Another way to say that is it's not by our attempts to meet God's standard. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You see, there's a reason for us to hope because God has been motivated to act towards us in unearned, abundant mercy. Don't you like that word? I mean, when we read 1 Peter, or not 1 Peter, Psalm 103, said he was plenteous in mercy, right? Here we're told he, it's his abundant mercy. It's like there's more than enough of who our God is. That's a wonderful reason to hope. Our our reason to hope is motivated by unearned abundant mercy, but notice secondly with me, it is experienced through undeserved new life. It is experienced through undeserved new life. He has begotten us again unto a lively hope. Strange language. Perhaps you remember what it's like before you trusted Christ. Perhaps you even experienced yourself recently where someone who's a Christian talks to you like, are you born again? What in the world are you talking about? Born again? What do you mean? Again, for a believer, been in church a long time, study the word of God, you understand the idea of what's being portrayed. But Peter uses that similar language here. It goes back to a conversation that Jesus had with a religious man in John chapter 3. The religious man's name was Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus is like, well, what? I, I, I've been born. And Jesus begins to describe, you have to be born physically. You don't exist if that doesn't happen, right? We celebrate it every year. Hey, it's a birthday. There are some people in here who have birthdays today. I won't point them out. Okay? They go, hey, it's your birthday. You remember that time when you were born physically. But Jesus proceeds to describe to Nicodemus, you have to also be born spiritually. You have to be born again. Because the reality is when we're born physically, we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 make that very clear. We, we have no inkling to reach out to God. In Romans chapter 3 will say it this way, there is none that seeketh after God. In other words, God has to begin to work on us. God has to reach out to us. And we begin to be convicted because we realize we don't live for God. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be given new life. Why? Because sin is overcome. Spiritual death is overcome. What event helps us with that? The resurrection. Sin's overcome. The grave's overcome. Death's overcome because Christ has risen again. He's conquered it all. So that again, we can go to those familiar words of 1 Corinthians 15. That tremendous chapter, 58 verses on the resurrection. And it ends triumphantly to say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave. Where's your victory? It's gone. It's been destroyed because of the work of Jesus Christ. You see, we can give praise to God because he's made salvation available through Christ. It is abundant mercy. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he's begotten us again unto a lively hope. He's given us new life once more. Again, this is something that is undeserved, it's unearned. That point becomes very clear in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 of 1 Peter. I don't have the time to go through all of it, but you can glance at it if you'd like as I walk through. We're told that in verse 18, we weren't redeemed, we weren't saved by tradition, merit, or payment. Okay, there's not anything that we could pay to merit redemption with God. Rather, verse 19, we were redeemed by Christ's shed blood. Well, we remembered even Friday night in Christ's crucifixion. Verse 21, it's received by believing on him, putting our faith and hope in him. Verse 23, that's why we are born again spiritually through the word. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Again, when we believe the message of Christ's salvation as found in the word of God, we're given new spiritual life. Understand, please understand this with me. This is not, well, I've always believed. You know, that's a very common thing today for someone to say, well, has there ever been a time where you believed on Jesus Christ alone? For, well, I've always believed. Well, biblically, the Bible tells us we haven't always believed. Biblically, the Bible tells us we're born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And if we're spiritually dead, we're not believing. There has to come a point where we recognize our sin. We hear the word of God. We choose to believe on Jesus Christ alone for salvation and be saved. It's at that moment we're born again. We're given this new life. 
understand also that because it's by faith, as we just uh, briefly covered there in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, it's not something we do, that it's not me saying, well, I'm a good person. It's not by what I do. It's not by what I pay. It's not by what I earned, but according to his abundant mercy. He's begotten me again to a lively hope. The resurrection provides a reason to hope. This hope is motivated by abundant, unearned mercy. It's experienced through undeserved new life. Third, it's empowered by Jesus' victorious resurrection. It says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've already touched this, so I'll go quickly here. But all that we've said so far, the mercy side, this begotten again unto a lively hope, is only possible because Jesus overcame sin in the grave because of his resurrection. I don't have the time to take you to every passage. You can jot down maybe 1 Corinthians 15 as an example, or 1 Peter here as another. But if Jesus, these truths are biblically accurate. If Jesus had not been perfect, he could not be our substitute for sin. If Jesus had not been perfect, he could not be our substitute for sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, no, he was just, and he died for the unjust. If Jesus had not died for sin, justice would not have been done because sin just demands death. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. The payment for sin is death. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 is going to tell us that sins don't get canceled out unless blood is shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So if Jesus had not been perfect, he could not be substitute for our sin. If Jesus had not died shedding his blood... Justice would not have been done. But also understand, sometimes I think we miss this one. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, sin and death would have won. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, sin and death would have won. And yet what we celebrate today, what we rejoice in, is that we do serve a risen Savior. The grave has been overcome. I love where we left off, if you were with us for the Good Friday service, Friday night there at the end of Matthew 27, where the religious leaders have come back to Pilate and say, hey, he said he was going to rise again after three days, and we're afraid his followers are going to come steal the body, and so we wouldn't want that to happen. That would be worse than where we started in the midst of all of this mess. So what do they do? Seal the grave! Set a watch, guard it, put people, soldiers out there so that no one can come take his body. Like, man, the stage is set because they've sealed him inside. They've got soldiers guarding the tomb, and it can't stop him because the grave is overcome. Mercy is extended. New life is given, and it is all empowered by Jesus' victorious resurrection. Having seen that our hope is motivated by unearned, abundant mercy, experienced through undeserved new life, empowered by Jesus' victorious resurrection, notice fourth, it's anticipated as an unmerited, irrevocable future. It is anticipated as an unmerited, irrevocable future. Admittedly, there's a lot packed in here in verse 4. Just glance at it with me. To an inheritance. He's begotten you again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. Incorruptible. 
undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It says, here's what is kept for you. Here's what is preserved for you. This inheritance is what we often speak of as property received by an heir. Here it's referred to of our salvation. Here's the future that awaits for you in heaven in glory. It's permanent. It's incorruptible. Yeah, we don't have to worry, you know, is it going to uh, rust? Is it going to break down over time? Is it going to be tarnished in some way? He's like, it can't be touched. Nothing changes this. It's incorruptible. Not only that, it's undefiled. It has no flaws. It has no uh, imperfections at all, right? It starts completely pure. I mean, even today, we could go and buy precious metals, and on the back, it's going to say, uh, you know, hey, it's point whatever, purity. Now, there's still something there. And when we look at what God has done for us through Christ, what awaits us in glory, he says it's untouchable. It's incorruptible. It's completely pure, undefiled, and it doesn't fade. It doesn't change over time. Now, what else in life is like that? We change. Some of us wear the last 10 years a little more than others of us. Right? We look at houses, cars. Everything around us is constantly in a process of decay, of fading away. It's a reminder we're not made for here. We're not made for here. This is not all there is. We yearn for something greater, something more, something more lasting. That's why in First or Second Corinthians chapter five, he's going to describe our existence as like a tent. Right? I don't mind it for a little bit, but I don't want to do it for months on end. Like your life here is like you're living in a tent just for a little bit of time. It's our earthly tabernacle, but when you enter eternity, you have a house not made with hands. This permanent structure here, we're told it's an inheritance that fades not away, and it's reserved. I kind of laughed earlier, um, you know, got people in here, got people up here, and I'm looking out, and some of you are coming in trying to find a seat, and I feel bad for you because you start to walk up, and it's like, oh, someone put their stuff on the chair. It's their way of reserving it. That's mine! Okay? Now, I, didn't, I did not see this take place. I, it would have been great if it did, but, uh, you know, someone could say, you know what, I'm going to move their stuff. They're not here, right? That's mine. No, it's not, right? I mean, that kind of happens in our house sometimes. Maybe it doesn't happen in yours. What was reserved has changed. You know what we're looking at here? Never changes. That's why I use the word irrevocable. may not a word we use a lot, but it never changes. The inheritance that God has for those who are his own, Regardless if life is completely uncertain and difficult, regardless of whether you're at home or having to live abroad, is an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It fadeth not away, and it is actively being kept. It's a perfect tense verb here for those grammar nerds in our midst, right? The action occurred in the past, and it is continuing presently. It is being actively guarded. It's not like setting your stuff down on a chair and going, that's mine. It's like standing there going, nope, you can't sit there. Nope, you can't sit there. Nope, you can't sit there. 
In essence, God is saying, I'm keeping a place for you. I'm keeping a place for you. I'm keeping a place for you. Like he said when Jesus left in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It anticipates that future reunion with our Savior, that future meeting of our Savior. Again, the people here face adversaries. And yet, even though they're displaced from home, Peter's going to call them to say, hey, rejoice. We didn't get to verse 6, but that's where he goes. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. you got a lot going on. There's a lot of trials in your life. But rejoice because of what God has done for you, what he is preserving for you. For you. Again, it's kept in heaven for you. This realm where neither rot moth nor rust doth corrupt, Matthew 6. Thieves don't break through and steal. No one's taking it. No one's moving your Bible. Right? Nothing touches that inheritance. But I believe we'd be remiss if we didn't get to this last thought, and I'll try to cover it quickly in the time that remains. I appreciate your patience as we've worked through the text. We've seen that our hope is motivated by unearned abundant mercy. It's experienced through undeserved new life. It's empowered by Jesus' victorious resurrection. It's anticipated as unmerited and irrevocable future. But what about now? What about now? Notice with me finally our hope is preserved by ongoing sustaining grace. Our hope is preserved by ongoing sustaining grace. The future is great. The past mercy of God is wonderful. But again, what about right now? There are times where we go through stretches in life and you're like, Lord, I'm not sure I can make it. Lord, the pull of temptation seems so strong. I know that I need to battle against sin, but I feel that I can't. I mean, even the Apostle Paul identifies with that at the end of Romans chapter 7. Well, Peter reminds them in the midst of the uncertainty and difficulty that's going on in life for them, he says, you are who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, God is keeping you right now. You won't see the fullness of salvation until you're in his presence. You won't see the fullness of salvation until all of it is overcome and we're in eternity with him. After judgment's been poured out, after, after Jesus reigns, after the devil is defeated, then you'll know. But right now, while you wait for that time, he is actively keeping you. You know, it's a fascinating thing to work through. I'll maybe key you in on a, past, a couple passages, maybe read just one other. But often the hope of the resurrection is communicated in Scripture to help believers continue on right now to keep battling away in the midst of difficult circumstances, to keep fighting against temptation and sin. Romans 6 makes that very, very clear. Another text that makes that very, very clear is Ephesians 1, as Paul prays. He's like, I, I want the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened, that you would understand what is the hope of your calling, that you would begin to understand the power of his resurrection that now works in you. One that particularly comes to mind is Hebrews 13. It's just a couple pages back in your Bible. But in Hebrews 13, he says, now, this is the end of the letter. The, the, 
letter of Hebrews, again, being written to people who are suffering as well. He says, now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's like, look, God raised his son from the dead. He overcame sin and death. He now works in you. He preserves you. He protects you. He makes you perfect. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he is keeping you actively, presently, right now. That's where he begins his letter, 1 Peter. It's also where he ends his letter. Because when you come to 1 Peter chapter 5, as he closes things out, he says, but... The God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, that's that inheritance, by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I don't know where each of you are at in life right now. Maybe things are going great. Awesome. What a reason to praise God. Maybe things are difficult. Maybe things are normal, just kind of average. Like, you know, not a lot to get excited about, not a lot to be disappointed by, just kind of average. You know, it doesn't matter where we find ourselves. On the mountaintop, down in the depths underwater, feeling like we're drowning, somewhere in between. God keeps us if we are His. Again, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, I would encourage you to make today the day of your salvation. You don't have to do anything other than to talk to God and put your faith in Christ alone. If I can be a help to you, I'd love to certainly talk to you about that, to take you to God in prayer and let you pray and tell God you're a sinner believing on Jesus Christ for salvation. But for believers here to realize, here's what waits for you in the future. Here's the life that you have right now. Here's the uh, manner in which God is keeping and preserving you so that you walk away on Easter Sunday saying, you know what? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's shown me abundant mercy. He's given me new life. He's evidenced that victory is possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given me this inheritance that I absolutely cannot fathom in the future. And he's keeping me right now, even in the midst of my own weakness and struggle. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the truth of your word we've considered here today. We desire to echo with Apostle Peter to say, blessed be you for what you've done for us through Christ. Lord, once more I would ask that if there's one who needs to put their faith in Christ for salvation, that you would convict of sin, that you would help help them understand the message of salvation through Christ, that they would put their faith in him alone. Lord, for believers here, I pray that we would be motivated not just to praise you with our lips, but to praise you with our lives as we seek to live for you, to point others to you. Lord, we marvel at and are humbled by the future that awaits because of what you've done. Lord, we're grateful that even now in the midst of our present struggles, you do keep us. And so, Lord, I'd ask that you would, by your grace, use us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray.